The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today's scripture scripture is from Galatians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 16, if you're reading from the Black Bibles in the pew, it starts at the bottom of page 913. When you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's Word. That's Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you just heard from our brother here, we are uh, continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, our sermon title this morning is going to be called In Step with the Truth of the Gospel. And that's just coming straight out of verse 14 in chapter 2, where Paul tells us that there is this episode that took place in Antioch, the church of Antioch, where there was some conduct, specifically by Peter, Barnabas, and the rest of the Jews, conduct that was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so really what Paul's going to do is zero in on this idea this morning of what it means for us to not only confess with our mouths the truth of the gospel, to have unity with the truth of the gospel, which is what we saw last week. If you just scan back about five verses, you come to Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, where Paul is able to say we are able to find gospel unity in the truth of the gospel, and now what he's going to drive at is this reality of when you have preserved and you can stand on that foundation of unity in the truth of the gospel, what does it then look like for the truth of the gospel to affect and impact, to influence, and to work itself out in every area of life? That's really what Paul is going to be driving at this morning. And so what we're going to do this morning is pray We're going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our minds to understand the Scriptures, okay? So let's go to bat and let's pray in those ways. Jesus, you told us that the Holy Spirit loves to magnify you. That in a sense, uh, we could say like he exists to put the spotlight on you. 
because you are worthy. You are worthy of honor. You're worthy of worship. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our lives. You are the Savior. You're also the Lord. And this morning, I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, would fill and drench. Immerse us, Spirit, in such a way to where we could say the living God has torn open the heavens and He was pleased to expose our needy hearts to our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Spirit, I have no ability right now to open minds, to open eyes. So I'm asking that you now by your power, by your might, for the glorification of King Jesus, would you open our eyes to see Jesus in this text? Would you open our eyes to see our need for Jesus? Would you open our minds to understand the Scriptures so that we could say with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us as He taught us the Scriptures? Spirit, come, fill, and move. It's for the namesake of King Jesus, we pray. Amen. We all know what a hashtag is, and my assumption is that we've seen this hashtag. The struggle is real. Uh, My guess is that throughout your time on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it might be, we've all seen a meme That perfect meme that just happens to pop up on your Facebook feed that just totally resonates with some sort of struggle that you've had. So for some of us, maybe it's been bacon struggles, right? Um, Like you're hard up, you don't have a frying pan around, but man, you got got your wife's uh, hair straightener, right? So the bacon struggles are real. Sometimes it's maybe um, sleep struggles, right? And so you're trying to drive to work, you're Netflixing too late at night, but you know, you're an adult, so you got to go to work the next morning, so you're popping toothpicks in your eyes, Uh, Maybe it's the diet struggle that you might have, right? Um, You know, you're supposed to be on that diet with your friend, but you find out very quickly um, that you have no self-control, and so you're stuffing donuts in your face. Uh, But whatever it might be, I think we can agree with our friend Baromir here uh, that one just does not simply get off the struggle bus, right? Um, You you are on the struggle bus. That just sort of seems to be uh, what it means for us to, to walk in this world. Now, what I want you to do is to take that hashtag in your mind, the struggle is real, and I want you to um, think about where we've been so far in the book of Galatians, sort of through the lens of that hashtag, right? So far, Paul has told us that there is just one true gospel. There's not multiple gospels. Gospel unity has been settled there in the early church among the Jerusalem apostles and himself. Last week, we saw very clearly that Peter, James, John, Paul, all on the same page. There's not some Jesus plus something gospel that exists out there. It's Jesus plus nothing. That is our only hope of salvation. It has been established that Jews and Gentiles are saved by faith in Christ alone. Case closed, the truth 
of the gospel has been preserved. That's really been the essence of Galatians chapter 1 all the way to Galatians chapter 2 verse 10. The truth of the gospel has been preserved. But as we turn to our verses this morning, what we find is that a struggle has taken center stage in Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia. Namely, the struggle of learning how gospel belief translates into everyday gospel conduct. You see, for those who've been born again, this is one of the key fights of faith that we have all experienced. And for anyone willing to tell the truth, hashtag the struggle is real. Yeah? Walking through this world saying, I know this to be true. Jesus plus nothing is my only hope of salvation. I have placed my faith in Christ alone. When I stand before the Father on that day and he says, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why should I let you into my heaven? We're not going to start arguing anything off our merit. What we're going to do is argue, Jesus has accomplished everything for me. My only hope of right standing with you, God the Father, is God the Son in everything he accomplished through his crucifixion and and his resurrection. That's going to be our argument on that day. A lot of us are here in that place, but a lot of us also simultaneously know that as we articulate that truth for our salvation, there's just that struggle of how that truth works itself out in the here and now, in the everyday aspects of life. We know the struggle is real. And so as Paul zeroes in on this struggle, because it's not a struggle unique to us, we're going to see here for the next several minutes, it's a struggle that was taking place even within the early church. As Paul zeroes in on this struggle, he's basically going to tell the Galatians about a time when the church of Antioch's Twitter feed basically would have been trending with this very hashtag, the struggle is real. And that's because there was a time when Peter the apostle, came to the church there at Antioch, and there's just no other way to put it. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel he believed. Now, Peter most definitely believed the gospel of grace. This was one of the driving points that we saw last week. Both Peter and Paul held to the one true gospel, but there was this one particular occasion in Peter's life, when gospel belief failed to translate into gospel behavior. And when you bring that truth forward, that idea of gospel belief failing to translate over into gospel behavior in our lives, we quickly realize this was not a Peter-only problem. For we too know what it's like to have conduct that's not in step with the truth of the gospel we believe, yeah? There's just areas of our life and our thinking and our speaking and our doing and our living where we say, the Lord, Jesus, he's my savior, he's my master, he's my king. But like, then what? Like, there's just these areas of our life where there's just disconnect, where we feel that tension kingly of how the gospel and what we believe and that struggle and that tension and that frustration of just going, my, my conduct, I see it clearly is just failing to match up with what I know to be true. You see, if you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, this is a tension, I guarantee, that you've struggled with. 
It's a tension that I've struggled with. And it's a tension because the genuine Christian who has been born again has this God-given sense that what we believe concerning the gospel is meant to impact our behavior. Paul's going to circle around to this and touch on it a lot more sharply at the beginning of Galatians chapter 3. Because he recognizes the tension for a lot of us is to go, God opening our eyes to see our need for Jesus and go, yes, and our Christian life begins by going, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm placing my faith in him as my only hope of salvation. But then we're so prone to quickly leave that Jesus stuff behind and start to continue to truck through life sans Jesus. The Galatians were in that place. I'm just assuming because you have been born again that this is a struggle that is common to you as well. We have this God-given sense that when we are born again and begin our walk of the Christian life in Christ, that we're not meant to continue the walk without him, that every single day is supposed to be an in Christ and in Christ and in Christ and in Christ kind of walk where he is conforming me and shaping and molding every area of my life so that the trajectory of my life is me being shaped, molded, conformed more and 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 more into the image of the king who gave his life for me. And so the question I think becomes this, at least this is the question that was on my mind this past week. So what am I to do? So if I can stand here and say, yes, gospel belief is meant to impact my behavior. I believe the Bible argues that. But I don't always see that in my life. I think the question becomes this. So then what am I to do? What am I to do? What am I to do when I realize my conduct in any given area of life is not in step with the truth of the gospel I believe. What am I to do? I believe this is the question that Paul wants you and I to wrestle with this morning here in Galatians 2, 11 through 16. In essence, he's throwing the spotlight on what it means to keep in step with the truth of the gospel, and he's going to show us what it looks like to keep in step with the truth of the gospel by highlighting a situation that shook out in his home church, the church of Antioch, where an entire part of the church fell out of step with the gospel and fell headlong into hypocrisy. So the question becomes, if you were listening to Jason as he was reading here, hypocrisy is one of the major themes that are flowing through these verses. And the people being identified as hypocrites are the people that you would most likely not assume to ever have been hypocrites. Peter, the apostle, Barnabas, the guy that was just with Paul fighting for the truth of the gospel, the rest of the Jews, a huge chunk of the church at Antioch was led into hypocrisy. And so the question becomes, how did they find themselves in this place? And Paul begins in verse 11 by saying they found themselves in this place of hypocrisy because of a fear of man. A fear of man. This was the source of their hypocrisy. Just look at what Paul writes beginning there in verse 11. 
to the first part of verse 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Just so you know, Cephas there, that's just Peter's Aramaic name, okay? So when you read Cephas, you're supposed to be reading Peter, all right? For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself, notice, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So when you come out of verses 1 through 10, which were marked by a spirit of unity, one of the last things you would expect to hear from the Apostle Paul is how he had to oppose Peter to his face because Peter stood condemned. You sort of get this ramping up crescendo of like verses 1 through 10, chapter 2. Gospel unity, man. We're fighting for it. We're linking arms. It's going to be great. You expect them to sort of round the corner and go, man, and we went shooting off into the early church areas on mission, and it was just unity, unity, unity everywhere. And he's like, unity, unity, unity. And actually, there was that time like when I had to punk Peter out to his face in front of everybody. And you're like, okay, that's sort of interesting. Like, what's, you know, what's that about? I mean, if you read verse 11, if anything, it's astonishing. It's sort of like a slap in the face when you round out of 10 into 11. And it just prompts you to ask, like, what in the world was going on that would lead to the two premier apostles to go head-to-head battle in opposition to one another? Brothers in Christ, who, by the way, had gospel unity. And Paul tells us by just explaining the issue quite simply there, man, in verses 12, 13, and 14. He says, in essence, the problem was this. Peter had changed the way he was interacting with Gentile believers. That's the issue. Before certain men came from James, Peter, there in Antioch, and the rest of the Jews, they were eating with Gentile believers. They were enjoying the freedom purchased them by the gospel. That is, they were freely eating with the Gentiles. Certain men showed up in Antioch. Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. Now, for us, in our context, Springfield, February 2019, we read this and we like barely stifle a yawn because like, who gives a rip with who's eating with who? Like, no one cares. But the thing is, in the context of Paul's day, Peter's day, Jews eating with Gentiles was something so magnificently big that we can almost, we can't hardly even just state it in in the words today. You see, for centuries, Jews were known for their strict laws and their separation from Gentiles. Under the old covenant, God had established certain cleanliness laws that he wanted his people to obey cleanliness laws that worshipers were meant to follow so that they could be ceremonially clean and acceptable for the presence of God in worship. So if you wanted to approach God as an Old Testament Jew and be acceptable in his sight, you needed to be clean. And so God established certain cleanliness laws for you to follow so that you could be clean so you could worship before God. And some of those cleanliness laws revolved around food. 
And the idea is that people could not draw near to God if they ate certain unclean foods. And this is what made eating with Gentiles troublesome because Gentiles, non-Jews, had no problem eating these certain unclean foods that were forbidden for Jews to touch or to eat. But with the arrival of Jesus, the time for these laws had come to pass. The design of the ceremonial law was to show that people cannot go into the presence of the holy God without cleansing. But by the death and resurrection of Jesus, those who received him and those who are born again, whether they were Jew or Gentile, they were made clean by faith in Christ. They weren't made clean by obeying food laws. Their cleanliness standing, if you want to put it in that language, before God was, are you placing your faith in Christ as your only hope of salvation? And so as we read this morning in our liturgy, Acts chapter 10, if you remember, God sent Peter a vision to establish this truth. Peter sees this great sheet full of animals that were forbidden for eating in the Old Testament. They come down and they descend, and Peter hears this voice that says to Peter, Kill and eat these things. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And that's like the one hinge phrase there. Like That's the point of that whole vision and sheets and animals thing from Acts 10 and 11. I commend it for you for homework this afternoon. Go, go home and read it. But like the summary point of this whole vision was to establish this truth that now that Christ has come, now that Christ has risen, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And if you remember, Peter, after seeing this vision, immediately goes out and he meets a repentant Gentile named who? Cornelius, who receives Christ, a Gentile who was born again. And because, listen, God cleansed the heart of Cornelius by faith in Christ, Peter puts two and two together and begins to eat with him. Why? Because when God makes someone clean in Christ, they are clean. Therefore, out of this cleanliness brought about by faith in Jesus... Peter rightly took advantage of this freedom purchased by the gospel. And he starts eating with the Gentiles, that is, until certain men arrived in Antioch. And Peter drew back and separated himself, notice, fearing the circumcision party. Fearing the circumcision party. So here's Peter boldly living out the implication of the gospel. You see this, right? Peter, you're not supposed to be around things that will make you impure and clean. God says, Peter, you got to know this. When I make something clean, I make something clean. And don't you go around calling it impure. And the implication in Acts 15 is that when God cleanses a heart and God makes someone clean, they are clean in Christ by faith. And so Peter's like, okay, all right, let's do this, right? We've got freedom now because that Gentile is clean in Christ just like I'm clean in Christ. So we can fellowship together in this way because our cleanliness standing before the Father is in the mutual focal point of Christ the Son. And so he starts, starts eating. And he's living out the implication of the gospel in Antioch. Right belief from Peter with right behavior. 
But then certain folks show up. Certain folks who arrive and hold a different conviction of eating with Gentiles. And what we learn is that Peter intentionally separates himself from the Gentile believers because of fear, specifically the fear of man. And when you are driven by a fear of man, at least one way this fear works itself out is by seeking the approval of others. And because you are anxious for their approval, and because you fear the loss of their pleasure, a fear of man can very quickly become in you people-pleasing. Do you see sort of the transition, how it goes? If I am fearful of Brady in the sense that I am seeking approval from him, I'm seeking pleasure, his pleasure in me. Like I don't want to be on the receiving end of his displeasure. I want to be in right standing with him. And if I fear what he can do to me, if I fear the loss of his approval, if I fear the loss of his pleasure in me, what I'm going to begin to do is act in a way where I begin to do things to please him so I don't lose his approval, so I don't lose the right standing that I seek with him. And what makes people-pleasing so dangerous is that people-pleasing can very quickly lead to hypocrisy, which is exactly what took place in Antioch. You see, Paul tells us that the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. In a nutshell, Paul is telling us that hypocrisy was Peter's crime. In antiquity, a hypocrite was an actor. Maybe you guys have heard this illustration before. Someone who would put on a mask and play a part in a performance. So in antiquity, a hypocrite would be someone like on a theater stage. Like off stage, he's Jonathan Davis. But on stage, he puts on a mask, and he's a different character with different beliefs and different thoughts. Off stage, you know how he believes, thinks, and acts, but over here, he puts on a mask, and he acts, thinks, believes, speaks in a way totally contrary to who he is off stage. And so that idea of an actor being a hypocrite was sort of that two-facedness. Mask on, mask off. You know me like this, but you also know me like this, okay? This word came to suggest the concealing of one's true character, their thoughts and their feelings behind a disguise. So when you act hypocritically, what you're doing is this. You're masking your true convictions in order to play a part that's not really what you believe. As one brother put it, play acting is exactly what Paul sees Peter and the rest of the Jews doing in Antioch. They have put on a mask to cover up what they truly believe about the gospel. So do you see what's going on in Antioch? Galatians 2, 1 through 10 would say this. Peter's over here going, we believe in the gospel. We believe it's Jesus plus nothing. We believe in the good news of grace. We're on the same page in these ways. People only get a right standing with God by faith in Christ, His death, His resurrection. 
Then the circumcision party shows up, and he's over here going, well, you know what, guys? Like, I'm just not quite sure what those things are, and I'm not quite sure that's the way it shakes out. And the implication of Peter eating with the, go- eating with the Gentiles, living out the gospel implication is that he's willing to say one thing with his mouth, but then his actions, as he begins to withdraw from those Gentiles, his actions are speaking louder than his words. Because his actions are saying, I actually agree and line up with these circumcision party guys over here. Because they're over here saying, I shouldn't be eating with you. I really don't have that freedom. The gospel doesn't lead to that kind of implication, because remember, the argument of the circumcision party is, hey, you need that Jesus thing, but you need to follow the rules you got to get circumcised. you got to keep the food laws. And so Peter was saying one thing with his mouth. This is my gospel belief. But then over here, his conduct of separating from the Gentiles was saying, I don't know that I really do believe that. Now, it's subtle. Because all it does is it looks like Peter just going, you know, pushing away from the table and just like walking away. And it just looks like a brother just doesn't want to eat with some folk. But Paul sees through it clearly, and he sees that it's an issue of conduct not being in step with the truth of the gospel. Remember, Peter had not changed his convictions there in Antioch concerning the gospel. Peter knew the gospel, Peter believed the gospel, but his actions just did not reflect the gospel. He had right belief, but listen, he chose to cover up his true convictions about the gospel with his behavior. Thus, Peter played the hypocrite. He was masking what he truly believed with his behavior. And not only did he play the hypocrite, but the rest of the Jews with him played the hypocrite, including Barnabas himself, which is why Paul summarizes the whole ordeal there at the beginning of verse 14 by saying, listen, this is just nothing other than conduct that's not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what this boils down to. Now, my guess is that what Peter, Barnabas, and the rest of the Jews experience in Antioch, it resonates with many of us here this morning. Because we too have found ourselves in similar situations. Where we say one thing with our mouth, I believe this is the truth of the gospel. But then we find ourselves in situation blank, fill it in. And because we fear the displeasure or the disapproval that might come from person X, what we do is we mask what we truly believe in order to please this person because we're afraid of them. I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that uh, there's something that deeply resonates with this Antiochian episode that Paul is writing about here where gospel belief is just failing to translate into gospel conduct. Gospel conduct is being hidden, averted, tweaked, turned, changed, because you're fearful of something. I mean, who among us can say, you know what, I have never struggled with the fear of man. Who among us can say, I have never struggled with seeking to please people. Who among us can say, I have never been tempted to play the hypocrite? You see, we've all been tempted to reach for the mask to cover up our true convictions when we're worried about what others might think of us. We've all been tempted to play act in certain situations in order to cover up what we believe by how we live. 
We've all found ourselves in those awkward places, in those tricky social settings, or those difficult situations at work or at school or with your parent and teacher conference when things are going on in the world. And like you're just like, man, like I know what my gospel convictions, I know what the implication of the gospel is in this moment, but I'm just telling you, like I'm struggling right now with this whole fear of man thing because if I articulate right now the true gospel implication for what it means in this moment, it will mean they will be opposed to me. It will mean I will not receive their pleasure. I will not receive their approval. Some walls will be built up. I don't want that. So I'm going to kill my gospel conduct in order to seek their pleasure because I'm sort of fearful of what they might do in opposition to me. I mean, good grief. Who among us can say I've never been there? Where the fear of man has led us to conceal our true convictions about the good news of Jesus. Where the fear of man has led us to conceal the, the truth about man's sin-stained depravity, the eternal realities of hell, the exclusivity of the gospel, or any other number of biblical truths that just so quickly fall out of step with popular opinion today. Am I the only one in here? Am, am, I, am I just peeing in on nothing around here? Like, have you been in that situation where you're like, man, this person needs to know, like, if they do not repent and believe, they're going to go to hell. And like, it's just time to tell them that. But you don't. Because you don't want, you fear the loss of their approval. I mean, it's time to now cross the pain line and begin to articulate, friend, I love you enough to tell you the realities of the gospel right now because your only hope of standing is Jesus plus nothing. But you know that that conversation is probably going to tear some things down. And you're fearful of that. And you want to please. And so you mask gospel conduct and implication driven by people-pleasing fear. I mean, good grief. I'm your pastor. I've been there before. If anything, ride on my coattails, and maybe we can listen to the application together. I'm just assuming that we've all been in that place, okay? So the question becomes this. What hope? What hope do I have if I find myself in this place? Like, what hope do I have for this wandering, fear-filled, people-pleasing, hypocritical heart of mine? What hope do I have? And to this question, I think Paul just simply replies, well, you have the most amazing hope in the world, and it's actually the hope of your justification by faith in Christ. Like, this is the solution to the hypocrisy that so easily entangles your heart. This is the solution to the people-pleasing fear that can so easily entangle your heart. It's to remember and return to your hope, the justification by faith you have in Christ Jesus. You see, like, I was just telling the guys downstairs this earlier, man, like, I, I don't know what else to say. Like, the sermon's pretty simple today, right? Paul's, like, going, like, hey, guys, uh, we got a problem here. Your gospel conduct's not in line with the truth of the gospel you believe. And he's just basically going to turn around and go, uh, you need to remember the gospel. Like, that's what verses 15 and 16 are, right? Just look at how Paul rounds the corner into the latter part of verse 14. So he says, listen, I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, so I rolled up to Cephas, I rolled up to Peter, Before them all, public sin, 
Peter's a public leader, and he has public led, publicly led many into hypocrisy, so Paul approaches him publicly, and he says to Peter, listen, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then notice the gospel language he picks up on. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because if you haven't figured it out by now, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Like, he just keeps taking that justified by faith thing. He's like, listen, we're justified by faith, not by works of the law, not by works of the law, justified by faith, in Christ, not works, in Christ, not works. He just keeps saying it over and over again. It's like, why, why now? Like, why is he choosing now to pick up on this language? Because when our behavior fails to reflect our belief, when we are tempted to live out our gospel convictions in one situation, but then cover them up in another, which I think is what's going on at the end of verse 14, I think Paul is helping us to connect the dots by asking us, what can we do in that moment? What can we do? Maybe some of us have had that clarity of thought where you're like, man, like, I am right now as I'm sitting across from my coworker and the Spirit is nudging you saying, like, this is the open door of opportunity right now. The Holy Spirit is just, it's there. And he's saying, now's the time to speak. And you're just like, because in the back of your mind, you're having like, you know, a lightning speed conversation. Well, if I say this, they might think that. And if I'm scared because of this, but I want people please, I don't want to ruin the conversation. Like, right? And you're like, like, it's just like computing, a high octane speed. Like, what are we supposed to do in that moment right now? How can we battle that fear of man, that people-pleasing, hypocrisy-producing fear of man in that moment? Paul says the answer is this. Return to the truth of the gospel. Return to the truth of the gospel. Return to the truth of the gospel. You see, what's interesting is that for the first time in his letter, Paul is summarizing the gospel as justified by faith. Just go back and look. Galatians 1.1 to 2.15, all this gospel talk, nothing about justification by faith. Verse 16, gospel definition, justified by faith in Christ. I mean, we're 16 verses deep into chapter 2, and Paul has not once referred to the gospel in these terms. And the question for me is Why? Why is now the appropriate time to refer to the gospel as justified by faith? And I think it's because Paul knows that his friend has a case of gospel amnesia. His friend's got a case of gospel amnesia. He's forgotten the gospel, the gospel he needs to return to. Paul knows that his friend needs to be reminded of his right standing with God in Christ. That's the idea behind being justified. It's to have a right standing with God in Christ. You see, Peter knows that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that Peter has believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. 
But Paul also knows that his fellow brother in Christ is gripped by a fear of man. A fear that has led him to cover up what he believes about the truth of the gospel so Peter can justify his actions before these other men. Now, Paul could come in, I suppose, and say, hey, get your act together. Start acting in accord with what you say is true, man. Like you're out of step and you're leading people into hypocrisy. Stop it. He could do that. But notice the grace of Paul's opposition. He doesn't look at him all red-faced and veiny-necked and say, stop the sin. He says, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. That is the grace of gospel opposition. When we see a brother or a sister straying in conduct that is not in step with the truth of the gospel, we don't come and drop a sledgehammer on them. We come and say, listen, I love you so much that I want you to live your life in step with the gospel. And right now, as your friend, I see conduct not in step with the gospel. So I want you to return to the gospel. Let me tell you about the gospel. Listen, Peter, you are justified with the Father by faith in Christ. Listen, Peter, you are justified in God's eyes. Your faith in Christ means you have right standing with God. You don't need to be justified in the eyes of anyone else. You don't have to seek the approval of these men. You already have received the full and forever approval of the Father in Christ Jesus. You're free from this fear, brother. You're free from this fear. Do you see what he's doing? Oh, saints, I wish I could just stick my hand into your soul and like connect some dots. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying you don't have to be driven by fear in this moment. You don't have to seek the justifying approval of men. Why? Because you have received all of the justifying approval you could ever desire, need, want, care for in the Son who has made you right with the Father. And because you are justified by faith, you don't need to seek justification from them. Because you have a right standing with the Father in Christ, you don't need to see to, see, to be, have a right standing with them. Because you've received all the full and forever pleasure and approval from the Father in the Son, you don't need to seek the approval. You don't need to live for the pleasure of man. You see, the gospel is a truth which has a vast number of implications for all of life. But for any one of us who struggle with a fear of man, any one of us who struggle with people-pleasing hypocrisy, I want you to hear this good news. Your right standing with God by faith in Christ means he has set you free from the soul-numbing pursuit of seeking to be satisfied by man's approval. I'm just going to guess, like, if we could just sort of set up, like, a little microphone here and have a little testimony time of those of us who would be brave enough to come up and say, man, I have run the rat race of trying to live for the approval of men. It is a soul-numbing, wearying, never-ending pursuit that will leave you forever unfulfilled. Because you weren't designed to be satisfied. Your dignity, your value, your worth, your pleasure, approval, you were never designed to find that in the approval of others. 
You're designed by God. It, it's in him. Your dignity, your value and worth comes from the creator who condescended by sending his son. The son that went to the cross to die for your sins. Crucified and resurrected so that you might be raised to the newness of life. So that by faith in him, you could have a right standing with the father. And now that you are redeemed and restored back into that right relationship with him, now what you begin to have is a life that can walk forward, not perfect, but walk forward in that freedom of gospel implication as the truth of the gospel begins to work itself out in the conduct of our lives and the way we think, the way we speak, the way we believe. So if you're here this morning in this place, my hope is this, that God would shower on you right now, that he would shower on you his grace as you return to the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand just the mighty implications of the gospel. Oh, it's good news for salvation but it's also just good news for everyday life. The gospel has saved us from our sin. The gospel tells us that he will hold us fast on that future day when he comes at last. Oh God, just help us to understand just what one brother calls the gospel gap how the realities of the gospel are the power that we need for the present in the here and now. And God, would today's application help us to think through clearly the realities of the gospel as it pertains to a fear of man that can so quickly produce people-pleasing hypocrisy within your people. So I'm asking that you, Father, would do a work in us. That you would expose sin in our hearts. That you would lift our eyes to the Savior. And that we would now freely uh, feel that freedom to confess this sin now as we round the corner into the Lord's Supper. So that we might walk in the freedom of the gospel which was purchased by the Son on the cross. It's in the name of our resurrected King, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.